Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. I'm Bob Strom, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife, uh, and this is our conference on Biden's first 100 days. Second panel, we're doing this in partnership with Jamie Cabler and the Rancho Mirage Writers Festival. This focus is going to be on Biden abroad, and I only have one job here, and it's a job I really like, and that's to introduce Michael Beschloss, who I have known for over 40 years, who was writing and did write a very significant book when he was about the age of a lot of our students. He's an award-winning historian a scholar of leadership, the best-selling author of not one book, but 10 books. He appears regularly on NBC News as the presidential historian, and he's a contributor to the PBS NewsHour. He's a friend. I thank him for being here today. His latest book and New York Times bestseller, Presidents of War, the epic story from 1807 to modern times, is a chronicle of the chief executives who took the United States into conflict and mobilized it for victory. If not all the time, some of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Once or twice anyway. (laughs) Michael, I'm going to turn this over to you. Thank you so much, Bob. And my wife and I all say that when Bob and Otzi left our neighborhood, they were our neighbors. Uh, The neighborhood dropped about 30% in terms of being interesting and also in terms of average IQ. I won't elaborate on that. (laughs) But we miss you in all sorts of ways. Thank you. Uh, Glad to get together, at least by Zoom. Anne Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian. She's a senior fellow at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and the Agora Institute, where she co-directs ARENA, which is a problem a, a program on disinformation and 21st century propaganda. Anne's much-acclaimed latest book, I'm sure all or most of you have read, Twilight of Democracy, explains why some of her contemporaries have abandoned liberal democratic ideals in favor of nationalist movements. And Anne, do you want to tell us where you are today? I am at, in Dworkobiel in Poland. I am in northwest Poland in Pomerania. Excellent. I was going to put this up for a quiz for everyone, but I think it might have taken a while to get to that. So we're, we're thrilled that you're here. Max Boot is in today. New York. In New York. He's a historian, as you all know, best-selling author, columnist, and foreign policy analyst. He's the Gene Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow for National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's a columnist for the Washington Post and the author of three books. His wonderful latest book, The Road Not Taken on the Vietnam, was a New York Times bestseller and a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Max was also a senior foreign policy advisor to John McCain, Mitt Romney, and Marco Rubio. Allison Dundas Rentelm, you want to tell us where, I know where you are, Allison, but why not tell the group? Well, I'm in Altadena, but I wish I were at Lake Geneva working on human rights. I was going to say, and Anne is concerned about disinformation, and you're here in front of this big picture of Geneva. You want to just tell everyone why you're sitting in front of a picture of Geneva? 
I'm teaching international human rights law, and so I'm trying to help the students, you know, have the experience of being involved there, I suppose. Acclimate them a little bit. In any case, uh, she is a professor of political science, anthropology, public policy, and law at USC. She's an expert on cultural rights, including the use of the cultural defense in the legal system. Allison has served on several civil rights commissions, uh, collaborated with the United Nations on disability rights, and served as a member of the California Attorney General's Commission on Hate Crimes. And uh, we are delighted to have Ben Rhodes. Uh, we won't play a guessing game. Ben, you want to tell everyone where you are? I am in Venice, California. Um, Much as this looked like the Arctic Circle, uh, Ben yeah. is lucky enough to be in Venice. And anyone who would question his judgment, which no one would, he moved from Washington, D.C. to Venice. So I'm yeah. in Washington, D.C. You should question the judgment of people who have <laughs> stayed back here and have the option of living in California. In any case, Ben, as you all know, he's the co-host of the wonderful Foreign Policy podcast, Pod Save the World. He is a contributor for NBC News and MSNBC. He's a former senior advisor and assistant to President Obama and served as the deputy national security advisor for strategic communications and speech writing. And if I might put in an editorial note, that sort of opaque title does not give you even a hint of his much greater importance to that administration and to history. Uh, ben was also a spring 2020 fellow at the Center for the Political Future. He's a best-selling author, and his forthcoming book, After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made, will be released in June. So with that said, we're not going to do this formally. You know, we were talking a little bit off-air before we started. I know everyone in the audience would just love it if we'd sort of sequentially read long papers maybe in, a, in another language. Uh, I think we won't do this. We're going to try to keep this conversation as informal as possible. And uh, this is a very polite group. Please feel free to interrupt or chime in, or you know, if, if it's something that you can add that you haven't spoken on, please do. And I guess the obvious first place to start is, you know, what do we think, how would we describe to someone who has no knowledge of it what is Joe Biden's foreign policy? And uh, to give you a wobbling softball through the air, will it be any different from that of President Trump? Uh, Anne, do you want to start? I mean, the real interesting question, actually, is not whether the foreign policy of Joe Biden will be different from that of President Trump, because it will, simply by the fact that he's Joe Biden and not Trump, and that he comes out of a completely different political tradition um, and also because he was vice president for eight years. And during that time, he made a lot of foreign policy. Obama used him as a envoy around the world. Um, the really qu interesting question is whether his foreign policy will be different from that of Obama. Um, is he going to be more ambitious? Does he have a different vision of the world? Um, it, it, and, the, and the danger for Biden, actually, is that, and the temptation for him is to kind of say, well, we can just fix everything by going back to doing what we were doing before. Um, you know, we just turn back the clock. We just keep out, you know, remember our old relationships, go and visit our old friends, shake hands with them, um, and, and move on. And, and that has to be a temptation for this administration, which has 
so many veterans of the Obama administration in it, including, of course, himself. Um, the question is whether he can see how much things have changed in the last four years and move on. Um, and most importantly, can he make the coalition of democracies, the transatlantic alliance, our alliances with democracies in Asia, can he make them real again? Can he find a big project to do together? Um, not just going back and, you know, repeating the mantras about NATO and friendship and so on and waving flags and so on, but can he, can he, can he work on new projects? Um, you know, I have some hopes. Um, I, I hope that this administration will work um, to, to, to reduce or eliminate kleptocracy, that it will fight money laundering, that it will cure some of the economic ills that undermine all of our democracies. Um, I'm hoping they will reform the internet. I mean, I know that doesn't sound like a foreign policy issue, but it is, um, to create a real democratic alternative to the Chinese model, the authoritarian internet that is now being adopted all over the world. Um, and I'm hoping he can make the the democratic camp attractive again, and 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 a and a true counter to the in, the increasingly linked up authoritarian alliances in the world between China and Russia, um, China and Russia and Iran, China and Russia and Venezuela, um, and 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 push back against it. But it's early days, and um, you know the 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 the, the it's, we're still reading runes here. Um, and trying to work out what it'll be. There are some hints that they want to be creative and interesting, but we haven't really seen that yet. Was there anything in the speech last night that surprised you, Anne? It wasn't so much a surprise. Um, I, I was interested by his comment about democracies needing to be effective. He made a point about, well, you know, in the time it takes us to reach consensus, the Chinese will already have done something. I don't remember the exact wording. Um, but that was interesting, as he, he now understands that to be competitive in the world, it's not just a question of, okay, who has the bigger army, it's who has the more effective political system. And he understands that making America effective domestically is a way of competing internationally. And that isn't language that we've heard or not quite in those terms in a long time. Um, and I, I, was, I was glad to hear it, although, as I said, I'm, I'm not sure yet what it means. Reminded me a little bit, I don't know how much this was an influence, but the way that Eisenhower in 55 argued you need an, uh, a national uh, system of highways for national defense, and Kennedy in 61, you need to go to the moon or else we're going to lose the Cold War, that it's sort of a conservative argument for big social spending that Republicans might not otherwise support. Is, is, do you think that has any influence on that? I mean, probably, and that's that's Joe Biden's generation. I'll remember right. those projects. But I mean, it's certainly the question. It's certainly the case that having a national project um, is one of the things that can mo can motivate Americans domestically, but it can also make a big difference uh, abroad. I mean, I think we've actually underestimated the degree to which Americans identify with themselves as world leaders. You know, we're the leading country, or we're the most important democracy. Or um, you know we're, you know we're 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 a superpower, and to the to the degree to which we've lost that, I think it's part of the disillusion with America and with American democracy. And I think revitalizing that abroad, um, contradictory though that might sound, is a is a is a partial answer to some of the you know some of the disappointment that we have at home. Interesting. Uh, ben, do you want to, you know, what, what would you say if, you know, a Martian landed and said, 
what is Biden's foreign policy? What is he, what is he trying to do? Well, I think what's interesting about Biden's foreign policy is one piece of it is just restoring a sense of America being a familiar actor in the world again, right? So, you know, having been in the White House for eight years, one of the things you come to appreciate is that the wiring of the international system that was largely built by America depends on us just doing certain things. You know, we're going to organize summits. We're going to organize collective action to deal with a climate change issue or a migration issue. Uh, we're going to punish a country that violates certain international norms. And so a lot of what they've done thus far is given the fact that Trump abandoned that role, it's just returning to that. But that is just the beginning. And that doesn't really define what is his actual foreign policy going to be? Where is he going to put his focus and attention? I think that in some ways, you know, there, there's, there's an, a, a, an absolutely essential thing that people need to understand watching this is that for, for the, this is, it's always been a talking point that foreign policy starts at home, that domestic policy is connected to foreign policy. But in this case, it's never been more true because part of what's happened over the last, you know, 15, 20 years is the dynamics inside of countries have remade the world in that you have a Russia that became under Putin increasingly revanchist and then increasingly went on offense to literally unravel the international order. Um, you have a Chinese government since Xi Jinping took power in 2013 that is seeking to assert itself as the next superpower that is going to shape the 21st century. Uh, and you have a West, a, d- a democratic community of nations that never really recovered its footing after the financial crisis, that the, the blow of essentially the discrediting of globalization, I would say because of the combination of the excesses and failures of our own economic model, but also because of the excesses of our post 9-11 wars, kind of opened up this space for this right-wing populism. And so you have a situation where democracy is challenged by Russia and China and, and adversaries to the United States like that, at the same time that democracy has been challenged from within. Uh, and the Trump years essentially brought those trends together because Trump abandoning that traditional role opened up space for Russia and China to, to have much more freedom of movement around the world at the same time that democracy itself inside the United States was under threat. So what is the Biden foreign policy going to be? They've yet to select. I think they have a, a, a series of things to choose in terms of what is their organizing principle? Is it to rally the world around climate change? That's one direction they could go. But that requires working very closely with China. And, 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 and it's harder to do that if you're in a, a direct competition with China. Another prism that they could go is organizing the American national security apparatus to oppose China in the same way that we organized it to oppose the Soviet Union in the Cold War. That's another way they could go. And then the third is this democracy versus autocracy uh, uh, option where, as Anne says, I think that gets into the wiring of, of the Internet, that gets into dealing with inequality, that gets into the democratic reforms that we would want to see done here in the United States from a Biden perspective and around the world. If I watched last night, they seem to be landing somewhere in between China and combating autocracy, that, mm-hmm. that he is going to utilize the challenge from China as a galvanizing force for his very ambitious domestic agenda, and he's going to utilize the challenge from China as a way to galvanize the world's democracies to kind of once again try to reinvigorate democracy itself. But again, we're early days here, but that, that's the theme that I feel emerging um, from, from all my former colleagues who, who, who've decided not to stay in places like Venice. Mm, right. Unwise colleagues. 
<laughs> How much, I mean, I think many people who talk about Biden domestically feel that as a result of the process, especially in the primaries that brought him to the convention to get nominated, he made a number of commitments that we're seeing the result of today. How much is that true in foreign policy, which was, needless to say, much less discussed in the spring and fall campaign? And if there are commitments like that, they sure are a lot less visible. So does, does he have a freer hand? He has something of a freer hand, but I, I will tell you that, look, they made some commitments. You know, he's, he's uh, exiting Afghanistan. That's in line with his commitments. He's returned to certain Obama-era agreements like the Paris Climate Accord. They're in the process of trying to return to the Iran nuclear agreement. But, you know, even from someone like me, you, you probably couldn't find a, a, you know, more public defender of the Obama legacy. I wouldn't advise them to go back to the Obama different time. policy because the world is very different. And they right. know that the world is very different. I think that when you look at what they're doing, though, early in presidencies, the focus tends to be domestic, right? So you have one year, really. I mean, most presidencies, and you know this better than anybody, Michael, like you do most of your big things legislatively and domestically in the first year of a four-year term. Uh, and it's just diminishing returns after that. And frankly, you know, they would never say this, but part of the job of a foreign policy national security team is to kind of keep the attention a bit off <laughs> the, the world so as to create running room for a, a very ambitious domestic agenda. However, I think where people have to look, therefore, is what are they doing domestically that, that is a clue to what they're going to do abroad? The, the, the package that they propose on infrastructure is an international climate policy, because if the United States can spend a trillion dollars transitioning our economy to clean energy, then we can go around the world at the end of the year when they have to upgrade the Paris Agreement and say, hey, you guys, look what we did. You all have to kick in more. And so their domestic climate agenda is their foreign policy agenda on climate. And then similarly on China, the focus he had last night on research, on innovation, on artificial intelligence, well, this is all about the fact that China is beating us on the development of artificial intelligence, on the use of big data, on the development of what the future of the internet is. And so if they can essentially seed through investment in the United States, a, a kind of technological momentum, they can then take that around the world to say to Europe and other allies, look, you got to team up with us to figure out how we're going to deal with disinformation, with propaganda, with the Chinese creating parallel internets and supply chains around the world. So when I look at what they're doing now, stuff that they're doing domestically will probably become more discussed and overt internationally by, by the end of this year. But it depends a lot on how ambitious a bill they can get through Congress on these things is. Fascinating. You know, thank you very much. Allison, you want to take a, a crack at this? Well, I think the question about what is his foreign policy and how does it differ from Trump's is an interesting question because it's the difference, you know, between night and day. And, and I think it's pretty great that President Biden faces the existential threats, deals with human rights. He makes human rights central to his foreign policy. And I think that's very different from Trump, who, you know, basically all, all his actions were inconsistent with U.S. commitments to human rights. So I've been very impressed by how quickly President Biden uh, has acted in terms of uh, not just emphasizing human rights in his domestic policies, because a lot of the domestic policies guarantee things like right to health, you know, right to subsistence, right to organize. Um, they may be phrased in terms of civil rights, but they resonate and they match up with international human rights. So he's been, I think, very savvy 
in promoting a domestic agenda, I think, as Ben was saying, that also matches international obligations that we have, like the Green New Deal is, is clearly promoting uh, energy independence so that uh, the United States would no longer have to be uh, bound by commitments to countries that we'd like to criticize. So um, it's, it's actually pretty sophisticated. And I think that um, under the Trump administration, it was a very narrow view of human rights that only uh, emphasized the right to property and the right to religious freedom. And Biden's view includes economic rights. So it's a much, much more, much more generous interpretation of human rights. Um, and uh, he's recognized uh, the Armenian genocide uh, and he's, um, you know, taking steps to re-engage with the Human Rights Council. So I think not only his sort of vision and the way his concept of human rights is so much different from his predecessor, but also his willingness to go beyond the Obama administration. Um, I think he could do more to demonstrate a commitment to human rights by making sure that we uh, respond to the commission of inquiry on racism and systemic systemic racism and police uh, uh, abuses that was just released and, you know, make sure that the laws get passed in the United States to hold police accountable, to have reparations for slavery and to make sure that he sends the treaties to be ratified to the Senate because he's known from his time in the Senate for uh, being a strong advocate of human rights in foreign policy. But the United States is the only country in the world that hasn't ratified the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And a lot of what he's been discussing, you know, a lot of the policies are to lift children out of poverty and get lead pipes removed so that uh, children don't, you know, aren't going to be harmed in this way. So um, it seems to me he has a real opportunity in his foreign policy to focus on treaty ratification, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, something that I've worked on. Um, it's been voted on twice in the Senate. It came close to being ratified. Uh, it's based on the Americans with Disabilities Act, um, rejoining the internet, you know, uh, ratifying the Rome statute to join the International Criminal Court. Um, there's so many things that, that, uh, Biden could make part of his foreign, uh, policy, um, which would be consistent with the commitments that he's made in his speeches. I thought his first speech in February, uh, that talked about his foreign policy was, was, you know, really eloquent on human rights. He ends with Eleanor Roosevelt and he definitely has a much broader view of human rights, more like uh, FDR in terms of the four freedoms. So I've been very excited since I, this is my area of human rights and international law to see how much he's more like the Carter administration, but he has very experienced people like Lincoln, unlike Carter, who was known for having more domestic civil rights people. So. I think it's a very exciting time to watch Biden's policy. And I thought that uh, the speech last night it ended with an emphasis on uh, human rights. And, and I think the other thing that struck me is that he's critical of leaders for, for their human rights conduct, but he also wants to work with them on climate change. And I think that's the sign of a good leader, uh, being able to be critical and continue to work with people. I don't see that as a weakness. Some of the things that people are saying well, about Roosevelt him, would certainly agree. Meaning Franklin, not Eleanor. Yeah, no, I think perfectly said. And just looking in recent history, if you were to su suggest a model to him of a human rights president after World War II, would you say Carter? 
What, what I'm thinking of is that, as you know, Biden was the first Democratic senator, I believe, to endorse Jimmy Carter when he ran for president, which at that time was a very contrarian thing to do. I think it has to be Carter because he institutionalized human rights in the bureaucracy of, you know, in the State Department. And he established these country reports with the help of Congress to measure human rights violations. And I would argue those those reports should measure economic rights as well as the ones that they, they do measure. I think it would have to be Carter, although he's faulted for various things. But um, other presidents have also paid attention to human rights, President Clinton. But, yeah, I guess it would be Carter. But others may disagree. You know, the two the two leaders are together at this moment, I think. He's down seeing Carter in Georgia, which I am told is not because of any health emergency, although Carter's not well, but he just wanted to see him. And I think Biden is taking every opportunity to be in Georgia for fairly op- uh, um, obvious reasons. Uh, the state of Georgia. Max, do you want to come in on this, please? I mean, I think a lot of the points have already been made. I would say as a general proposition that every president uh, has some continuity and some discontinuity with the foreign policy of his predecessor. And we focused more on the discontinuities, which I want to elaborate on a little bit, but I want to get to some of the continuities as well. In terms of discontinuity, obviously the big one is, I really think the Biden administration is the last best hope for American internationalism because Trump obviously ran on and governed on a America first policy, which harks back to the isolationism of Charles Lindbergh in the 1930s a sharp break with 70 years of American foreign policy tradition. And support for that still remains, I would say, dismayingly strong, not just on the right side of the political spectrum, but there's also a lot of isolationism on the Bernie Sanders left side of the Democratic Party as well. And I really think that uh, that Joe Biden, who has you know, devoted much of his life in the Senate to foreign affairs and has a, a great team of, of centrist aides, folks like Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan. I think he really has uh, an opportunity here to try to revive America as the last best hope of mankind. And do you think of everyone available in the Democratic primaries, he's the one who is best situated to do this? Well, absolutely. I mean, I think he's the one who has the most foreign policy experience. And I think he has a visceral commitment to American international leadership going back, you know, having served for two decades in, in the Cold War. Uh, and I think he's off to a good start in that regard. I think he is uh, putting transnational issues like uh, climate change back on the agenda. Obviously, symbolically, he rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. He rejoined the WHO. He's trying to reassure our allies. And I think some of those moves have been uh, uh, much needed, including sending uh, Tony Blinken and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin to South Korea and Japan and, and basically talking up our alliances instead of trashing them at every opportunity. At the same time, uh, Biden is certainly breaking with Trump's pattern of kowtowing to dictators because, and you saw it last night in his speech, he was basically saying that the free ride uh, for Xi Jinping on human rights and for Vladimir Putin on just about everything, that free ride is over. And he's made clear that he has to stand up for American ideals, which is uh, a concept that Trump was obviously unfamiliar with. And I think there's certainly been criticism of how far he's gone, for example, in putting the sanctions on Saudi Arabia for uh, Mohammed bin Salman's role in uh, in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. But I think he's basically trying to thread the needle and at least I think doing a pretty good job of pushing back against some of these dictatorships that have gotten used to a free ride uh, in the Trump administration. 
Um, I think he's also trying to undo a lot of the damage that Trump did, including his very unwise decision in 2018 to pull out of the Iranian nuclear deal, even though Iran was complying with it. And of course, we still don't know if they're going to be able to put uh, that back together. But I think it's important to try because in the time since uh, Trump left the JCPOA, Iran has turbocharged its nuclear program. And it's clear that Trump and the critics of the JCPOA, and I speak as somebody who was critical of it when it was negotiated, but in hindsight, I think it's the only thing that has really been able to stop and or even slow down the the Iranian nuclear program, which is now speeding up at, at a dangerous level. And Iran's breakout time is much less than it was uh, when they were still in uh, the nuclear accord. So I think that's all to the good. And, and, uh, and these are all discontinuities where I think uh, Biden is on the right track. Now, as I promised at the beginning, let me also mention some continuities that we haven't talked about because they're also there. Uh, for example, last night, uh, Biden was talking a lot about Buy America, uh, which, you know, which kind of raised my hackles because this is basically a, a, a you know, a, a, an appeal to protectionism. And Biden talks about it all the time, about good American jobs, union jobs. He's not going to export them. He's going to stand up for American workers. Well, that's all fine in theory. We're all in favor of standing up for American workers. But the question is, do you do it by trying to protect the U.S. economy from global competition, or do you do it by trying to make us more competitive in the global economy? And, and the sense I get from Biden is he's trying to do some of both. But I've been, you know, I, I've been a little bit dismayed that he has not rejoined the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a great treaty, uh, great free trade accord, which would help us to contain China, negotiated by, by President Obama. I think it's something that we need to do. And, and remember, the last two Democratic presidents both negotiated major free trade accords, NAFTA for Bill Clinton, TPP for uh, President Obama. But President Biden is giving very little indication that he's interested uh, in free trade. And I, and I think that's a mistake. Uh, there is certainly some continuity in Afghanistan where uh, last year Trump negotiated a very one-sided accord with the Taliban, which calls for us to pull out of uh, Afghanistan, but does not force the Taliban to stop fighting and with a May 1 deadline to pull out. And, you know, Biden is extending that by a few months, but basically he's agreeing that he's going to abandon our allies in Afghanistan. That's something that's popular right now because everybody wants the troops out. Nobody wants to be involved in forever wars. But I wonder if it's still going to be popular a few years down the line if the Taliban are marching into Kabul and uh, and uh, murdering our allies, uh, repressing Afghan women. This decision, like President Obama's pullout from Iraq in 2011, which was also initially popular, may not work out so well, may not be so popular in the long run if it backfires. And I think it's just a, a, a mistake that uh, kind of that we don't need to take, that we could afford to keep 2,500, 3,500 troops in Afghanistan in an advisory capacity. Um, the final aspect of continuity that I would mention is China, because like Trump, uh, Biden takes a pretty hard line against China, sees it as our major threat and is seeking to organize U.S. foreign policy around standing up to China. I mean, there are, to be sure, some important differences, uh, including the fact that uh, Biden is championing human rights as an issue with China, which is something that Trump did not do. And of course, I think the most important difference is that uh, Biden is trying to uh, reinvigorate U.S. alliances in Asia because he understands that we can't go it alone against China. And so, you know, having a, a uh, you know, a meeting with the Quad, uh, with uh, 
India, Japan, and Australia, I think is an important development. Uh, I think this is all part of trying to create an alliance that can contain uh, the threat from China and the South China Sea and the Taiwan Straits. But at the same time, I think Biden also understands that he needs to cooperate with China on global warming. And we also need to continue trading with China. And I've been, you know, again, I've been dismayed to see that we haven't dropped Trump's tariffs on China. We'll see what happens with those. But clearly, that's an important economic relationship that needs to continue. And, you know, it's a very complex policy and some aspects of it are odds with one another. And so, you know, it'll be interesting to see how the Biden team, uh, you know, kind of balances these competing imperatives. But it's clear that just like Trump, they do see China as, as our number one threat. And I think that makes sense. Yeah, I've been a little bit surprised that Biden has done so much and said so much about foreign policy in the first hundred days, given how much people are focused on the domestic problems that we've got. I mean, if you look at FDR in 1933 as a parallel, Roosevelt barely gave three seconds of thought to the world during the first hundred days, although Hitler had just come to power in in Germany and there were some things that probably in retrospect he should have. And Johnson the same in early 1965, uh, with the mammoth exception of Vietnam, he really neglected the world for much of his first two years in a way that we haven't seen from Biden. Uh, Max was talking about Afghanistan. Anyone else want to come in and react to what they've seen President Biden doing on Afghanistan? I guess all I'd say is I, I, you know, I, it's a very difficult issue um, given how much there are people inside of Afghanistan who, who stood up for us and with us and for the things that we cared about. Um, I tend to come down on the idea that there were diminishing returns to our military presence um, and, um, and, and therefore the, um, the, the, the scenarios are going to play out um, you know, frankly, whether or not there are 2,500 or 5,000 U.S. troops, it's not clear to me that that was um, going to, you know, measurably impact uh, the the direction of events. Uh, I see Max's point, though, and so I think that that it's necessary to you know, to interrogate these things. I, I, the, the only thing I'd add to it, though, Michael, is that um, I think that part of what they're looking at, and this gets to the Iran issue too. There's a massive challenge to America and the world right now, emanating largely from China and Russia. Um, the amount of work, and, and it's connected. And, and interestingly, you know, Max, Ann, and I like probably been on different sides of lots of different things over the years. I think, I don't want to speak for them, but the, this idea that democracy itself is being squeezed and crunched, both from within and from without, is something that, that, that I think a lot of us would agree with the, the premise of that. And I think part of what he's doing and trying to do, and, and Michael, some of the stuff he's talking about, is trying to close out some accounts. You have limited bandwidth in government, you know? And when I think about how much time, there are not that many people sitting in the West Bank. There's one, only one Tony Blinken. And there's only, yep. you know, the, the amount of time we spent on Afghanistan, on Iran, on Yemen, on Somalia, on, on things that were not China, Russia, the future of the internet, inequality in the world, the, the climate change, right? Part of what I think Afghanistan is about is just saying we just we need to fo- we need to, to focus on these other things. We, we I cannot have my Secretary of Defense. He needs to be in Asia, thinking about what American force posture has to be in Asia to deal with China over the next thirty years, um, rather than thinking about 
the next round of the, the 21st year of deployments in Afghanistan. So uh, I, I, I do think that to make sense of this from, from the outside, like you said, as you kind of frame the question, as someone who doesn't follow this, part of what they're just going to be doing this year is trying to close some accounts, try, like Iran is part of this, that we can't spend four years on Iran again. Let's get this nuclear deal in place that takes care of our biggest concern with the Iranians, which is whether they can get a nuclear weapon, because they're going to have to be try- trying to figure out how do we revitalize democracy in, in the community of democracies around the world, and, to, and, and how do we deal with the challenges of, Ru- of Russia and China at the same time? And to Anne's point, that connects to home. That's like, how do we regulate technology and social media? What are we in, in investing in here? That, that gets at... You know, what are we doing to protect the right to vote in this country? Because frankly, part of what we've seen, and, and not, we were too slow to see in the Obama years, I would criticize us, the, the way in which there was a single authoritarian trend building in those years. The same playbook that Vladimir Putin used, that Viktor Orban used, that the Law and Justice Party, as Anne is so eloquently written about in Poland, has used, the same nationalist politics that Bolsonaro has used in Brazil, that Erdogan has used in Turkey, that, that Duterte has used in the Philippines. This is the future. This is where the world is going. And just because Donald Trump didn't get reelected doesn't mean that that's not still where the world is going. And, and so the challenge for these, these guys, the, the, the men and women in the Biden team is, is in part, yes, how do we kind of go down the list of things that people watch, like Afghanistan and, and, and Iran and the rest of it? But it's also just how do we reposition America at home and abroad to deal with that, to deal with the survivability of liberal democracy in this country and around the world? And that, I think, accounts for them trying to kind of rush through in some ways what the inheritance was so that they can then get to these bigger issues, which, by the way, are going to involve trade-offs that all of us are not going to be able to agree about. They have some hard decisions, the trade-offs that they're going to have to make in year two, year three. That's where we're really going to know where the rubber hits the road. Right. Please, Anne. Well, I accept that I, I agree absolutely with what Ben just said, and, and I do think that's the future. But an element of the pushback against democracy is still going to come from the from radical Islam um, and from fundamentalist movements around the world. Um, and having one of them take over Afghanistan, if that's if if that is what's going to happen, um, is you know that's not going to be good for the cause of democracy everywhere either. Um, and I really find it hard to understand why if we're able to have small contingencies of troops in so many countries all over the world, uh, keeping an eye on situations, offering advice, um, you know, ready to help if something happens. I, it's, it's not clear to me why we had to pull out Afghanistan now. And I do hope that the Biden, uh, the Biden administration has a backup plan if there is an ugly scene and, a, and, the, and if the Taliban marches into Kabul um, sometime over the next few months or years. Oh, let's move on to Iran. Uh, what do we think we're going to see in Iran with Iran during the next year or two with Biden? Anyone? Well, I was going to comment about Afghanistan. Please do. Please do. The uh, International uh, Criminal Court was going to have an investigation of uh, atrocities committed in, in Afghanistan. That would include U.S. troops. So that just the timing seems a little odd for us to be pulling out right while there's going to be that you know kind of scrutiny. That that was a big controversy. I, and I just wanted to echo what others had said, which is that there could be human rights consequences for the pullout. And I and and Anne was saying there should be a plan, whether it's you know to help refugees escape. But I, I was just saying I also worry about the consequences. To, to to President Biden's in his to his credit, 
He's willing to admit when he's made mistakes. I think he regretted being in favor of the intervention in Iraq. So uh, he's open-minded. He's willing to acknowledge if he's made a mistake. So that gives us hope, I think. I'll let someone else take up the Iran question. I think on Iran, they're going to try to get back in this deal. And, uh, you know, that I think is, is it, having lived those, those battles, it's a, it's, it's a two-front issue because it's, can we get the Iranians to agree to essentially return to the terms of the original deal? And then can we, can we bear the political blowback at home when inevitably to get back there, you have to, to remove some sanctions? The one thing I'd say, Michael, to the, this, the Iranians have an election coming up. And so I think that they're either going to get back into this deal relatively quickly, or this thing is going to be in limbo for probably another year or two. Um, I think that if they can't get back in the deal relatively quickly, the Iranians have an election, maybe a more hardline uh, uh, Iran, Iran, Iranian approach to the nuclear file emerges from that election. They'll still try to, to, to negotiate some kind of interim thing where it's like, Iranians don't advance your nuclear program from where it is now and return for some more marginal sanctions relief. I think they're going to be trying very hard to just de-escalate the situation, ideally by getting it back into a deal, but even absent that, to avoid what was happening in the last two years of Trump, which was we were constantly on the knife's edge of a, of a real military confrontation there or the risk of Iran actually acquiring you know, a nuclear weapons capability. So I think to people watching, like the next you know, month or two, we will know whether they can get back into the 2015 agreement. If they can't, we're in a bit of a limbo, but I don't think this is a group that wants to live on that, that precipice of, of a, a direct military confrontation. Um, and so they'll see, seek other ways to at least um, uh, avoid that escalation. Yeah, I think even, I mean, even if we do succeed in getting back into the JCPOA, the formal name of the nuclear deal, uh, you know, as Ben and others well know, uh, a lot of its provisions are going to start expiring in a few years in 2025, 2030, and so forth. And so uh, that's really even re-entering the JCPO is really going to be a holding action because they're going to have to renegotiate to extend the timelines on that uh, with the threat of U.S. sanctions out there. But I really, you know, again, I, I'm speaking as somebody who was pretty skeptical of the JCPOA when it was initially negotiated by Ben and his colleagues. But again, in hindsight, I don't think there's ever been a better alternative. And, and in fact, we just know empirically that uh, Iran had to give up almost all of its fissile material as a result of the JCPOA. And now they're enriching like crazy and becoming much more of a nuclear threat than they were when the JCPOA was in business. And, you know, I just don't see any alternative propounded by folks like Ma- Mike Pompeo and others who got us out of the JCPOA because their alternative is basically going to slap all these unilateral sanctions on Iran and hope that they will holler uncle. And we have this list of like 12 demands that we want Iran to change every aspect of their foreign policy if they want to see sanctions lifted. Well, okay, it's not going to happen. I mean, we've had sanctions for decades on countries like North Korea and Cuba without altering their behavior. And that's worked beautifully. Right, exactly. I mean, our sanctions have have actually worked to the extent of they have hurt the Iranian economy, no question about it, but they have not led Iran to change its behavior one iota. And even when we're killing Soleimani, who was the commander of the Quds Force, that has not led Iran to give up its proxy fights in Syria or Yemen or Lebanon or anywhere else. They are a bigger threat now than when Trump came into office. And so I just, we, I, I just don't see any credible alternative to reviving the nuclear deal. Great. Anyone else on Iran or can we go on to China? Well, I wanted to say, couldn't there Please. be more 
infections? I mean, if, I, I wonder if the U.S. could set an example here with, for greater transparency and, and have more inspections of our nuclear weapons and nuclear facilities. I think that we only had one, one uh, that has been done by the International Atomic Energy Agency. If that's part of the, if that's one of the goals of, of this agreement, that maybe we need to start showing that we, you know, we're prepared to be subject to this kind of scrutiny too. Um, I mean, I think it's a question which countries are entitled to have the nuclear capabilities, which I'm not sure people really want to discuss. That's no, part that's of right. this. Never have. <laughs> I would add just one brief thing, which is that I would like to see the conversation about Iran also become part of this broader international conversation about democracy. You know, there is a big democratic movement in Iran. Um, we've never had much to do with it formally. We haven't helped them much. Um, you know, we haven't seen them as a player in this conversation. Um, and, and, you know, over the next few years, if we can expand our policy towards Iran to include them or to think about them or to use the language of human rights and democracy when talking about Iran, we could do a lot of good in the long term. Wonderful. We've got about 10 or 11 more minutes for our discussion, and then we'll turn to questions that are coming in from the audience. So maybe a little bit more brief, just so we can skip get through a couple of issues. We've talked a little bit about China, but anyone want to predict Biden and China, what he's going to do and how it's going to work? There's there's no recording made of this that will be used against you in two years. I think he's going to open up more educational exchanges and, and use cultural diplomacy. I think that works well with China. And I think Biden is aware of that. I, I think also maybe they will revisit the question of whether international students should, should be allowed to work on projects funded by the government. That's a big debate at universities. What chance is there that China is going to become a big domestic issue in this country, which it shows signs of being now, but in my view has not become yet, but might? Ben? I think it's going to be huge because if you look at the Republican Party, you know, uh, not just Trump, but any possible nominee right now in 2024 is basically creating an identity for themselves as the biggest possible hawk on China. You know, was Nikki Haley. Anti-Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, anti-Chinese Communist Party. And you have a Democratic Party that, you know, is is come coalesced around a tougher line on China for sometimes different reasons. That's powerful. There's not much in this country that there's a bipartisan consensus around. I, I as someone who believes that we should be doing more, um, it, it, when I look back on the Obama years, the, the, the human, I wish that we had been more vocal about human rights concerns in, in China, um, particularly post Xi Jinping, um, when you saw like a qualitatively different and more aggressive Chinese effort in places like Hong Kong and obviously ultimately that, that evolved into, uh, you know, a, a, at least a cultural genocide in Xinjiang province. Um, I see plenty of reason to, to do this. I do worry. How do you control it? You know, when you start to, uh, and we are, obviously this has bled into some of the anti-Asian hate that we've seen domestically. But look, you know, I think you ask where this is going. I think what he's going to try to do is he's going to try to figure out what is the multilateral agreement about the danger of China. A lot of these consultations that have been happening with Europe and Asia thus far, I think are about, are you with us in signing up for confronting them collectively over human rights concerns? Are you with us in signing up to trying to create different supply chains for everything from 5G technology to how we protect pharmaceuticals? Are, we, are you with us in trying to sort the world in some ways into separate blocks here? 
um, because that, that's where they see this headed. I'm not sure um, what the appetite is for that in Europe. I'm not sure what the appetite is for that in places like Japan, South Korea. So I think they'll be testing this first year, okay, you know, how much do people want to, to confront China on these issues, while at the same time, and I think appropriately, trying to work very closely with the Chinese on the threat of climate change and on the threat of future pandemics and on global health security. I think that what people need to be tuned to, though, is there's a risk of conflict here, you know, whether it's Taiwan or the South China Sea. And so they're just going to have to be careful about, okay, we're in a new phase. We're going to be very open and direct about our differences in a way that U.S. and China hasn't been since 1979. Um, But, you know, we also still need to work together for the world to function, for the global economy in some ways to function. I'm with Max on the question of, like, do we really need tariffs as part of that strategy? I don't necessarily think so. And so being more precise about it and channeling some of that sentiment into, I think it's healthy to channel it into investments in R&D here at home. I start to worry when we're channeling it more and more into confrontation that could unwittingly lead into conflict abroad. So it's a very delicate balancing act that they're going to have this multilateral get tough on China approach, I think is right. But how do you control it and and, and not leave it, uh, but it get out of hand, you know? Hmm, right. Max? One hidden aspect of the competition with China that we're not talking about enough uh, is the military competition because China has been undergoing a very rapid military buildup for the last 20 years where they're investing very heavily in asymmetric technologies that are designed to negate our conventional military advantage. So they're spending a lot of money on diesel subs, uh, ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, cyber, space weapons, all sorts of things. And they are tilting the balance of power in the Western Pacific against us. The the Pentagon has been holding war games for years. In the last few years, we're losing the war games. We're losing these conflicts to China because they have figured out how to negate our military advantage. And that, you know, that knowledge, even if, you know, uh, knock on wood, we never actually go to war, just that knowledge of, of our different military strengths has a big impact on behavior. And I think you're seeing China act much more aggressively right now in the South China Sea and with Taiwan, because they feel like they are becoming more powerful and we are becoming weaker. And I think the way to counteract that is we need to change the way the Department of Defense does business. I mean, you've seen the Marine Corps in the last year radically reorient towards the China threat, where they're, for example, giving up their their armor, which they've had for many, many decades, and focusing on an island hopping campaign against China in the Pacific. But the other larger services are basically in, in more of a status quo mode. And I think they need to do more uh, to embrace unmanned systems. I'm not sure that we need to be spending you know, $12 billion a pop on more aircraft carriers, which are going to be very vulnerable to Chinese carrier killer missiles. Uh, so I think there's a lot of changes that need to be done to embrace new technologies like AI, like quantum computing and so forth. And I'm not sure that the Pentagon is moving fast enough. And that's you know, that's one of my concerns with Lloyd Austin, who has a very uh, storied and distinguished career in the U.S. Army, uh, but he seems like more of a status quo kind of guy. And I think he's going to do a lot of positive things, including root out uh, white supremacists and extremists within the ranks of the U.S. military. I think that's all to the good. But, you know, I just have a big question mark. Is he going to be able to push the Department of Defense in a more transformational direction, which is very hard to do because of the entrenched interest on, on Capitol Hill and among the contractors very, very hard to do. But I think we need to do that so that China doesn't feel like they're going to be able to win a war against us. And then we can effectively deter China from conflict. 
Michael, you know, your first question about China, you said, mm. what do we predict? And mm -hmm. I hesitated for a second because prediction is very difficult in this sphere, not least we're, because... We're destroying the recording of this immediately. <laughs> no, no, but, but no not worry. least because, you know, we're talking about U.S. policy towards China. It, you know, we, we may well discover both actually, by the way, in the case of China and Russia, that it's they who decide to test us in the coming years, um, that there will be a test for the U.S. perhaps in Taiwan, um, a test for the U.S. perhaps in Ukraine, um, per perhaps elsewhere. Um, you know, they are beginning to, to try to feel exactly how prepared the U.S. still is to go to war. Um, and we may see a surprise move in the next few years. And that's the... Um, um, that's something that we just need to be prepared for sort of intellectually and mentally and politically. Mm -hmm. Before we go to the audience questions, uh, I'd like to talk about Russia a little bit, although we've touched on that. Maybe begin, uh, why do we think that Joe Biden is proposing a summit with Vladimir Putin? The important thing about Biden and Russia is that Biden is the first president to come to office since the Cold War who does not think he can reset relations with Russia. He doesn't believe that he can have a better relationship with Putin just because of his charming personality or because, you know, because he imagines Putin to be Christian or whatever the, um, whatever the previous criteria were. Um, he's very realistic about Russia, um, which I like. Um, but I, th I think he thinks that he's, he, you know, having imposed new sanctions, having drawn some clear lines, I think he thinks that, um, it's nevertheless possible to talk to Putin. And, and, and really, um, it, you know, it's really only possible to get anything done with Putin from a position of strength and from, you know, from, being, from, a, from a willingness to show that you can, um, that, you know, that you're willing to push back if need be. And he may feel that having done that, it's now going to be possible to have a conversation. Um, we'll see. I mean, Putin, Putin operates on a completely different set of criteria and a different timeline. I mean, his most important interest is keeping himself in power. Um, and so he's, he's gauging everything that he does. He uses the United States as a kind of foil in his politics. And he puts, you know, anti-American slogans are on television in Russia now every night. Um, and he creates the America as a big enemy of Russia. And so for him, um, everything, everything that he does in foreign policy is really has a, has a domestic echo. Um, I think this administration understands that. And it may be that they're, um, that they're they're trying to reach him in, in in different ways so that he can begin to tell a different story at home. Interesting, Alison. You want to come in on Russia? I'm wondering if if there should be some sort of meeting of all the leaders to have a code of ethics for behavior. I mean, just the way the judges of high courts around the world drafted the Bangalore principles of judicial conduct, and these six principles were agreed upon by all of them. It would seem as though. In their interactions, there need to be some sorts of principles that they agree on. I think Biden's setting up the um, the cybersecurity unit or whatever within the State Department is is partly a response to Russia. Um, so, I mean, I think I think there could be a, a multilateral approach to some of these tensions, and also it seems that there are some institutional changes within uh, our foreign policy machinery as well. Um, but I do, I do agree with Anne that I think that it's good to be realistic about, about the relationship. And I've been, uh, found it heartening that Biden would be critical of the way journalists are treated and Navalny and so on. And that Biden has been forthright, which is great. Michael, one quick thing on this. I think there are other tools we haven't used. Everybody always focuses on sanctions. 
and mentioned anti-money laundering, uh, taking more action around the Russian manipulation of the international financial system that sustains Putin and his kind of network of oligarchs, and perhaps being more transparent about what we find <laughs> in terms of the corruption uh, that Putin is, is engendering, not just in Russia, it's an international issue in other countries. And similarly, an effort to, to deal with disinformation on our social media platforms, that's a Russia policy too. So there are things that are not in the normal bucket of direct confrontation that I think could give us more leverage and more tools to deal with Russia that, that I hope, and I think from you know, working with Jake Sullivan and people like that the last few years, that, 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 that I hope that they explore. Mm-hmm. Great. Max, do you want to come in? Uh, no, I mean, I agree with all that. I think that the key point is that uh, Putin is a thug. He's a wily thug, and he will take as much as he can get away with. And sure. you know, under Trump, we had a completely uh, a schizophrenic policy where uh, Trump's aides got him to sign off on some sanctions. In some cases, it wasn't even clear that he knew what he was signing off on. Mm-hmm. So he had some sanctions, but at the same time, he never said a harsh word about Putin in public. And of course, he completely undermined our support for Ukraine by trying to black, use our military to blackmail the Ukrainians into helping him politically against Joe Biden. So that was, you know, that was a disgrace. And it showed that uh, Trump did not care one iota about our allies or about standing up to Russia. So I think just the symbolism of Trump getting defeated, especially when we know there was in 2020, as in 26, there was a covert Russian disinformation campaign to help Trump win. And we know that in 2020, that failed. In 2016, it succeeded. So just the fact that Biden is coming in after the Russians tried to defeat him and worked with uh, Trump and, and his minions to spread this crap about uh, Hunter Biden and, and, and all this other nonsense and, and invented corruption by, uh, by, by the Democrats. And it was really a, a joint effort by the Russian intelligence services and by uh, the Republican Party and, and the Trump White House. And mercifully, all that was just very narrowly defeated in November. And so now Biden is coming in and letting uh, Putin know uh, that he has his number. And as, as Ann says, he is not looking uh, for a kumbaya moment. He's not looking to kiss and make up with Putin. He has started off tough with sanctions. And I think they've calibrated pretty well because they have imposed more sanctions, but they're leaving themselves leeway to do a lot more depending on what uh, what Putin does if he invades Ukraine, if he kills Navalny. I think there are still some pretty heavy sanctions options, including kicking the Russian financial institutions out of the SWIFT system that we could still take. That would still be pretty painful to them. But I, you know, I think it makes sense, even as we're confronting them, to still talk with them. Because, I mean, goodness knows, even in the middle of the Cold War, all the, you know, the presidents were still meeting with the, with the leaders of the Soviet Union. So I think it's important to keep those lines of communication open, if only to, to tell Putin face-to-face, hey, these are our red lines. We take this very seriously. You're not going to walk all over us, and I have no illusions about you in the way that my predecessor did. Right. And no point in throwing away a tool. I'm going to go through some of the questions that have come in from the audience, and then we have a hard out 15 minutes from now. Uh, question number one. The Castros are gone from Cuba. President Obama tried to normalize relations with Cuba. Trump reversed course. Cuban Americans in Florida had a huge impact on keeping that state Republican in 2020. What do you all think Biden can and should do in Cuba? And how would that influence the red or blue tilt of Florida in next year's election or in the election of 2024? Having negotiated that normalization, um, 
I, know, I, 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 thought, uh, I thought you might come in on this, Ben. Yeah, I um, look. I think we're missing an enormous opportunity here. I, I, I think that the the Cuban, you know, Cuba is not China. Cuba is not even Vietnam. Cuba is ninety miles from Florida. And the idea that if you know if you open things up there, and and you have a private sector emerging in Cuba, which you did by the end of the Obama years, and you have uh, people traveling there, and you have internet access there. I just think that, like, undisputably, life would get better for the Cuban people who have suffered greatly under the mismanagement of their own government and under the U.S. embargo. And insofar as we care about humanitarian concerns, I think that's to the good. I also think, though, strategically in Latin America, after we negotiated that normalization, we negotiated a peace agreement in Colombia, in Havana. It opens up a lot of space. If you're going to deal with Venezuela, if you want to you want to negotiate some process of a transition in Venezuela, that is made much more easy if you have a relationship with Cuba. Um, so I think there's lots of reasons to, from foreign policy perspective, to kind of return to an effort to re-engage and reopen things with Cuba. Uh, I think, frankly, the only impediment is this question of politics in South Florida. I think my friends in the Democratic Party sometimes make the mistake in thinking that by being kind of Republican Party light in South Florida, we're going to win those votes. No, everybody knows who the bigger hardliners are. Um, uh, you have to offer an alternative. Um, and, and I'm worried, I, I do worry that the Biden team is just afraid of touching this issue. It's politically difficult. Uh, they're well-placed members of Congress, not just on the Republican side, but on the Democratic side, like Bob Menendez, the chair of the Senate, Senate Foreign Relations Committee, who don't want to see a return to engagement. So I'm worried that, that, that what I think they should do is re-engage. Um, I worry that they're going to put that on the back burner. And, and meanwhile, it's not going to improve human rights in Cuba. It's not going to certainly help the Cuban people. And, and we'll be missing an opportunity if we don't do that. Anyone else on Cuba? I visited Cuba and the sanctions there have done so much damage. We haven't really talked about how sanctions, you know, are a crude instrument. And they often hurt the civilians, the people in, in these countries. And so, I mean, I think Cuba is an example, you know, like Iraq and, and Iran, where the sanctions have done a, a lot of uh, humanitarian damage to, to the people. I would hope that, that Biden will have the courage to open there. I thought that was uh, uh, Secretary of Commerce Penny Pritzker's uh, work was partly. Did she work with you, Ben, on that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. She was a huge believer in this. Um, and, and you're right. It's heartbreaking to see. You know, everybody should go see. These, these sanctions are good press releases in, in the U.S., but. Boy, people should not be living like that 90 miles from, from Florida. Yeah, people can't afford the food that they're selling in the, in the farmer's markets. It, it, it's, uh, it, it was heartbreaking to see. We've got another question from someone about uh, what we can expect, what changes we can expect in the U.S. relationship with Israel under Biden as opposed to Trump. I mean, I don't think you're going to see a dramatic transformation because Biden is pretty pro-Israel. And you've seen uh, that he has been, you know, pretty supportive of Israel. There's no question he's not going to be as close with Prime Minister Netanyahu, assuming he's still going to be the prime minister as as Trump was. Because in, in, in during the Trump years, those guys took it well beyond any kind of normal diplomatic relationship. They became like political running buddies trying to use each other for their own domestic political advantage. And it was deeply inappropriate. And, you know, Trump was certainly pro-Israel to a fault, but I think he was over-the-top pro-Israel, like, you know, uh, I mean, some of the things he did were okay, like moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem, which other presidents had said they were going to do. He actually did it. It didn't turn out to be the catastrophe that a lot of people imagined. But, you know, I think some of the other stuff he did about, 
you know, uh, for example, uh, recognizing the Israeli annexation of the Golan Heights, big mistake because it's a blow against the, the principle of territorial integrity, which has been a bedrock of international law in the post-World War II world order. And in general, there was kind of a sense that, that, uh, that Trump let uh, Netanyahu dictate U.S. foreign policy, for example, when it came to uh, leaving the JCPOA. And there's a lot of disagreement in Israel about the JCPOA. A lot of folks in the Israeli security services actually think that sticking with the deal helps Israel. But of course, Netanyahu and the Likud are very much opposed to it. And, and so, you know, so were a lot of the big donors to Trump's campaign. And so, you know, he got out of it. This became kind of a right-wing talking point in the United States. So, you know, I think what the way that that the way that Trump embraced Israel for political gain is really not helpful to Israel because you know this is a reminder that Republicans aren't always going to be in power in this country and Israel in the past has had bipartisan support but now I see that support waning among a lot of younger progressives in the Democratic Party and the way that Trump wrapped his arms around Israel and made you know support for Israel uh, like a cultural issue in the United States you have to support the Republicans to support Israel. For a lot of Democrats, that's their message is going to be, well, I don't support Republicans, and so I'm not going to support Israel. That's the wrong message to send. I mean, we still have pro-Israel leadership in the Democratic Party with folks like Chuck Schumer and Biden and Pelosi. But, you know, I do worry about the next generation and the long-term damage that uh, Trump has done to the U.S.-Israel alliance. But I think, you know, Biden is, is moving it in a more, it, it's still very friendly to Israel, but, but moving it in a more appropriate direction where it's not over the top as it was under Trump. Anyone else on U.S.-Israel? I think a lot depends on whether the leadership of Israel changes. I mean, my, my guess is, is that nothing much will happen as long as Netanyahu is still in charge and there'll be a kind of, you know, a kind of standoff where nothing changes in either direction. But a different Israeli leader could create a, a more creative and interesting U.S. policy. But, you know, making a prediction in Israeli politics is even... Um, this is even more, even more fraught <laughs> for, for anyone. prediction about U.S. politics. Well, I think it's worrisome that our policies change so much with the administration. It must be very hard for our allies and foes to figure out what the United States is going to do. And I also worry that the president shouldn't have as much power to decide to withdraw from the WHO during a pandemic. Uh, I think that we need to rethink our system so that the president doesn't wield so much power to to interfere with our, our foreign relations to that extent. It, it, it doesn't make sense. Well, in fact, that flows into one of the last two questions. I'll, I'll sharpen this a little bit from the question that's being asked, which is how much of a problem have we really got now in that there are enormous swings between an Obama giving way to a Trump and a Trump giving way to a Biden in foreign policy and let's say if Biden does not get a second term and it goes to the Republicans again, let's say Biden giving away to Hawley or Cruz or Trump, you know, another extreme lurch, how much of this is a long-term problem for American foreign policy? I think it's a big problem, which uh, Biden alluded to last night, because he mentioned that in his conversations with world leaders, he's saying America is back, and they're saying for how long? And I think that's exactly right, because... We have seen the resurgent power of isolationism, nativism, and protectionism in the United States. And those forces have obviously not gone away just because Joe Biden won a narrow victory in November. And I think there's a lot of concern around the world. And I mean, I'm concerned, too, about what happens if a Republican went the next time when a Republican wins the presidency. Is it going to be somebody 
who is very much an internationalist in the mold of, you know, John McCain, Mitt Romney, Ronald Reagan? Or is it going to be an isolationist very much in the mold of Donald Trump? And right now, looking around the Republican Party, you have to say the heavy odds are that whoever becomes the Republican nominee is going to be a Trumpian isolationist and, and nativist. Uh, and that person could well win. I mean, you know, what happens, you know, if if if, if Biden doesn't run four years from now and it's uh, Vice President Harris on the ticket and, and facing an opponent who uses sexist and racist uh, appeals to try to defeat her, I mean, it could get very ugly. And uh, if a Republican wins under those circumstances, you could easily imagine a lurch back to that kind of Trumpian neo-isolationism and neo-protectionism. And so I think right now it's just very hard for countries around the world to have long-term <laughs> confidence in the United States because we've seen how much ugliness was being repressed underneath the surface of American politics for so many years. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, I'm a patriotic American. I love this country, but my confidence in America has been shaken by the events of the last four years. And so I just think that we have to be realistic that you can't just snap your fingers and say we're back and, and have everybody believe that. No, that's for sure. And it's a major problem in particular for our allies. Um, and for other partners who want to build long-term plans with us. I mean, whether it's, you know, whether it's the, the, the NATO, whether it's, uh, you know, as I said, a, a long-term plan to think about money laundering, whether it's, um, you know, other kinds of financial structures, whether it's what, you know, whatever, or whether it's climate change even, um, you know, building something that's going to last longer than four years has now become very difficult. And one of the problems that Biden is going to have is that a lot of allies are going to hang back um, and they won't want to put all their eggs in American baskets um, while they're not sure who the next president will be. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, everyone who has participated. Thank you to the Dornsife Center and uh, USC for providing the auspices for this. Thank you, everyone in the audience whom we can't see, but we know you're out there. Everyone stay safe. And thank you very much for being here. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC P-O-L Future. That's USC P-O-L Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. 